Welcome back to Close Reads here on the Close Reads Podcast Network. I'm David Kern, and I am joined by my old friends, Heidi White and Tim McIntosh. Heidi, Tim, how's it going? Welcome back to the show. Thanks, David. Thanks, David. It's going great. We are here to discuss books five, six, seven, and 8 of The Odyssey, Homer's The Odyssey. We get to meet Odysseus finally after four books of... Well, I was going to say set up, but that's not really fair to the Telemachy. But after four books, we finally get to meet... Odysseus. Um, if you want to join the conversation about the Odyssey, you can do so on our Facebook group. You can search Close Reads Podcast Discussion in the search bar on Facebook or whatever they call that. You can also follow us on Instagram and on Twitter at Close Reads Pods, and you can email us at Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. We also do have a email newsletter, which I've been trying to send out every week, but at least every other week, and that you can sign up for at closereads.substack.com. I just sent out an email that has a video that our friends over at Roman Roads Media put together where Wes Callahan is explaining Dactylic Hexameter. It's a short little three-minute video. So he really gets it. He really understands it. He reads some of the original Greek and he kind of breaks down what Homer was doing and, and what the original Greek sounds like and, and the, the purposes of it and the effects of that. So if you want to learn more about that and do kind of a deep dive, check out that email. Uh, I also posted that on the Facebook group if you didn't get the email. So lots of good information uh, in that email. But we are here, as I said, to discuss books five, six, seven, and 8. And... What I was thinking is, since we're covering four books, why don't we do a bit of a summary of what happened in each book just to get our bearings? So here's what I was thinking. Tim, are you there? Are you with us? I sure am. Okay. So this is what I want to do. Let's rotate through and each take a book. And in one, at the most, two sentences, give a summary of what happened in that book. I'm going to let you do book five. And since I'm letting you do book five, I'm also going to let you do book eight. (laughs) That's nice. So... Um, what would you say is the one to two sentence summary of book five? How, what, what is the thing that you would uh, most emphasize in book five that you would choose to prioritize? Calypso frees Odysseus from the clutches of a beautiful goddess. Mm. And her smooth caves. <laughs> <laughs> Heidi, how would you summarize book six in one to two sentences? Odysseus lands in, is, how do you say it? Phaeacia, right? Phaeacia, or, or Scuria. He's in Scuria with the Phaeacians. Uh, and he meets a beautiful young maiden princess who leads him to safety. Which then brings us to book seven, where that safety is, um, to borrow the title of the book that Emily Wilson's translation, A Magical Kingdom, and he meets the king and the queen, and they are nice to him. And then that takes <laughs> us to book eight. Tim, what is, um, what is book eight about? One to two sentences. Odysseus impresses all with his abilities. Mm. Okay, so um, you know, one thing that I like to do with classes when I'm reading stuff like this is, especially, I mean, it doesn't really work with the Emily Wilson translation because it gives each book a title. But as an exercise or as a class discussion or whatever, sometimes I'll ask them to title a book so they kind of get 
to ask, basically what you're asking him to do is get at the essential, what's the most essential thing in the book. So I was going to do that. And then I looked and I realized, oh yeah, she already gave us titles for the books. So we don't need to do that. But it's interesting to hear what each person kind of chose as their essential core of each, of each book. Um, and let's, so let's go back to book five because Tim, you mentioned um, that he escapes the clutches of Calypso, beautiful goddess yeah, Calypso. Yeah. So we obviously need to talk about this. There's a few things in these books that I, that I want to talk about. I want to talk about Calypso. And in particular, I want to talk about Calypso versus or compared to Nausicaa or however you... How do you guys say her name? I say Nausicaa. I like Nausicaa as the... Pr- yeah. I think it's the yeah. prettiest flow. Okay. So. okay, we'll go with that then. So Calypso and then Calypso as opposed or in comparison with Nausicaa. And then the question of... Odysseus's relation with Calypso, and then we need to talk about um, if we have some time after that. Those seem to be the most essential things, but then we need to talk a little bit about this uh, magical kingdom, as Emily Wilson puts it, where he, where he lands and where they're nice to him, as I said. Um, there's a question that often comes up relating to Odysseus and Calypso, and I feel like we probably should talk about it. It's already come up, I believe, on a thread on the Facebook group. And that's the question of... I guess the best way to put it is... Um, whether Odysseus is, uh, how do people, how is it often, is Odysseus unfaithful to Penelope yes, given right. how fidelity she is yeah, to him? So let's talk about fidelity and Odysseus and Calypso. And, um, and I guess, I guess we could just put it, put it pretty bluntly. Do you think, Heidi, I'll ask this to you first. Do you think that this is an example of, um, Odysseus's lack of fidelity. Sure. So according to the Christian ethic, absolutely yes. Like he just cheats on his wife with a goddess. That That's what happens. Um, that is not at all how the Greeks would have seen it. There's no question that the Greeks considered Odysseus as, as having a choice in the matter or not. If a god or goddess wants to have a sexual relationship with a human, that human must and shall be available without question. That's So basically what Calypso is doing is keeping Odysseus as a pet, right? She, she likes this human man and wants to keep him like a possession. And that's what she does. And Odysseus has no choice in the matter. So the Greeks would not have connected his relationship with uh, with Calypso to his marriage to Penelope. And it's very clear, again, we're going to talk about Nausicaa today, uh, that he is faithful to Penelope in the Greek mind, within the Greek ethic, because he turns down sexual relationships with other human women. But in terms of the goddesses, that he just... he he has to that is that that's the terms of the relationships between deities and humans you do what they want you to do mm. tim do you oh, the way she put that is interesting because i was wondering as i was reading it this time whether he has been whether he actually has agency in the relationship with calypso do you, how do you read that do you mean do you read him as having is actually making a choice in in that situation, making choices, I, I guess. I do, and I would I would supplement what Heidi said 
that I think also we, we get descriptions of Odysseus as godlike Odysseus. Yeah. And I think that there are special rules for Odysseus. Um, I, I think that Homer, how do I say this? There are certain things that Odysseus does, like in the next book, he will flatter. And when Homer describes Odysseus's action of flattering, Homer mm-hmm. doesn't blush to relate that to us. And, when he's, and that's when he's, he sees Nausicaa and he's trying to decide what to do. Exactly. And he decides, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to talk to her and try to win her over that way. Yes. And so I think there's something about Odysseus. He's, he's, remember that the Honey Badger video? Honey Badger does what Honey Badger wants. Honey Badger getting like, what's Odysseus? He gets what he wants to get. And I, there's a certain kind of, um, there's an ethic that we bring to the text that he violates over and over and over. And it can be disconcerting for someone who's reading the Odyssey for the first time that Odysseus just does what Odysseus wants, which is not to say that he doesn't have a code. He doesn't have an ethical stance. He most certainly does. But I think he does have agency with Calypso. And I think that he kind of gets to sleep with Calypso because he's a different cut of man. He's like a different, he's a different brand. And Homer thinks this is a good thing and thinks that we should think it's a good thing also. Hmm. To be desired by a goddess means that it, it's it's an elevation of his status, kind of puts him in between God and man. Right. But he's not a demigod, right? He doesn't have a God for a parent. And so Homer has to show that in a different way. And the desire of a goddess is one of those ways. Mm. Mm. You know, it's funny because I was thinking to a certain degree, like, the the godlike Odysseus feels like it's trying to convince us why she would be into him. Yeah. <laughs> why a goddess would be into him. And it's like, okay, Homer, I've suspended my disbelief enough now, but like a goddess and a, being that into a man, you know, come on. But then he's like, no, it's okay. He's godlike. He's really close <laughs> to being a god. David, what do you, what are the, do you remember what um, Homer does to kind of convince us that Calypso would be hot on Odysseus? Is this a leading question? <laughs> no, 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 no. It's a genuine question. I just can't remember what the language was. She sees, she rescues him when his men have died yeah. after the shipwreck. And then she just keeps him because she's so impressed with him and has heard tales of him. Um, the other thing about Calypso that is so interesting, and when we get to book 24, well, I, I know... I don't know if we'll revisit it then because there's so many other things to talk about in book 24. We can try. Right? But so I'll mention it now. Um, when he is reunited with Penelope, there's a section at the end in which Odysseus is telling her back. He's, he tells Penelope the story of his sufferings and his travels, um, his odyssey. And he tells her about... Calypso, and he tells her how he has withstood her, how she, how Calypso kept him and lured him into her smooth caves um, and keeps him there. And then he tells Penelope, and I withstood her. Like mm. I stood out against Calypso. And so there's great debate about that phrase. Is that, or that, that passage, it's 
brilliantly written. I, I, I mean, really, it's the ambiguity of it is just absolutely perfect craftsmanship wise, right? Because if you're on the Odysseus's unfaithful side, you can use that as evidence that he lies and manipulates Penelope because he didn't withstand Calypso. He slept with her right. every night for seven years. Right. Right. Or if you're on the Odysseus was faithful side, then Penelope then is, is basically saying, I know you slept with a goddess, but I get it. And when, and when Odysseus claims I withstood her, what he really means is he turned down Calypso's offer of immortality because of his great love for his wife. So all of it's actually evidence of how much he loves Penelope. So then the faithfulness is less tied to like a sexual ethic. Yes. Yes. Because the sexual ethic of the time was about, was, was all about succession. Right. So that's why Penelope must be faithful is because if she's unfaithful even once, then even Telemachus's uh, paternity is in question and then he can't rule the mm-hmm. kingdom. So, so, Because there's no paternity test back then. So faithfulness in marriage is everything. So the whole point was Odysseus didn't sleep with humans and then wasn't able to father bastards who would come against his trueborn son and create unrest within the kingdom of Ithaca. So his love for Penelope is very clear throughout the Odyssey. He greatly loves his wife, so much so that he turns down the offer of a goddess to become immortal. But a lot of it's tied to the issue of paternity as well, which was a major anxiety of the time. And and that I mean that's a paternity and succession and all those things are a key part, part of the Iliad and the whole question of the Trojan War in the first place. Right, which is why I think Homer puts that, and I'm on the side of the Homer, it was written by one man, um, probably through, you know, stories and oral tradition. But I, I think that he put that, that these two stories next to each other, Calypso and Nausicaa, are structurally important to understand Odysseus's love for Penelope and his true desire to get home, which is he's seduced by a, a, a goddess and used as a pet, taken as a, like a sexual slave for seven years to this goddess. And she offers him immortality and he turns it down because of Penelope. And then he goes to Scoria where he meets Nausicaa and they try to convince him to stay and marry her and become the king of this rich and magical kingdom. And he turns it down because of his great love for Penelope and his desire to be home. So he has these two kind of opposite ends of female seduction and he turns them both down for the sake of Penelope and home. I'm glad you mentioned the magical kingdom thing too, because in both cases, it's more than just the beautiful young girl in Nausicaa or the beautiful goddess in Calypso. It's, it's the immortality of, you know, that Calypso offers him. And it's also the kingdom that Nausicaa's father offers. He's turning down, he's Mm -hmm. turning down. They're both in their own way. They're each a sort of kind of immortality that he's turning down. Yes. Um, A false homecoming. Yeah. Yeah. A true home. I like that Emily Wilson titles that chapter, a mad chapter, what seven, a magical kingdom, (laughs) because Mm -hmm. I think that that does get to the heart of what's being offered to him there. And, and And it's a really nice combination with Calypso's own sort of different sort of magical kingdom, I guess her magical Island or whatever. But, um, you know, it's more than just, you know, the beautiful woman that he's, that he's turning down, that he's rejecting. Right. You know, it's, it's the, it's the, it's the kingdom. It's the, it's the power. It's the, um, 
you know, he'd have been remembered forever as a king on that island. That's but, right. You know, and yet and he turned that he turned that down. Um, mm-hmm. but let's talk a little bit about Calypso because I was struck by the fact that unless I missed it, she never tells him that she never reveals that Zeus sent Hermes and she kind of makes it see as it seem as if she's freeing him. <laughs> um, that's how I read it anyway. Tim, would you, is that how you read it? Or did she, did I miss it? And at some point she's like, Oh, you know what? Zeus is making me leave. She kind of makes it seem like it was her choice to him. I, I would not put that past Calypso from, I cannot remember for some reason. I thought that Odysseus knew Hermes had visited, but I, I, my recollection is very fuzzy on that particular point. I think he was on the, sh- I think David's right. I think, I thought he was on the shore. One eighty-five. He's weeping on the shore, and he he spent his nights with her inside her hollow cave, not wanting her though she still wanted him. Yeah. By day, he sat out on the rocky beach in tears and grief, staring in heartbreak at the fruitless sea. The goddess stood by him and said, "Poor man, stop grieving, please. You need not waste your life. I am quite ready now to send you off." That was the line that stuck out to me because, and exactly. The opposite side of the page, she says, this is the worst. The gods are the worst. Why are you making me do this? No, you're so right. You're so right. And like 149 through what, 158, um, acknowledging the edict sent by Zeus, the goddess went to find Odysseus. Yeah. yeah. So it's, yeah, it's clear. He's, he was not anywhere near the cave when Hermes showed up. At the end of her little speech though, and I think it's like about 167, um, if that is what these, I'll provide water, red wine, and food to stop you starving. I'll give you clothes and send a wind to blow you safely home. If that, if this is what those sky gods want, they uh-huh. are more powerful than me. They get their way. Yeah. Okay. But then he says, "You have some other scheme in mind, not my yes. sight passage." So it, it, it to me, it seems like he doesn't he doesn't know that the that the gods sent her, and she kind of references it. But then at the same time, she's trying to make herself look magnanimous and maybe that's a way of her kind of playing him and trying to um keep him around like to to show you know well she directly offers him eternal life and in her let's say it's on page 186 at the bottom the goddess queen began odysseus son of laertes blessed by zeus your plans are always changing it's polytropos by the way do you really want to go back to that home you love so much well then goodbye but if you understood how glutted you will be with suffering before you reach your home, you would stay here with me and be immortal, though you might still wish to see that wife you always pine for. And anyway, it's such a feminine thing to say here. I know my body is better than hers is. Mm-hmm. I'm taller too. Mortals can never, never rival the immortals in beauty. And then Odysseus responds with just this majestic... With tact, as amazing <laughs> speech, right? That placates her and still gets him home. Yeah. So, yeah, he leads with the compliments. Mm-hmm. Ooh, Penelope could never match your beauty. She's human. You are deathless, ageless. Yeah, he lays it on really thick at the beginning before the barb comes at the end, or the, the decision comes at the end. Right. So, I guess it's not really a surprise that, that Calypso's. You know, into him. <laughs> if he, mm-hmm. he's watching her to, you know, stay on her good side for seven years now, yeah. she could have just done away with him, right? By the way, if you guys imagined what the conversation, because we don't get it in the Odyssey, what the conversation between Penelope and Odysseus about Calypso might have sounded like, 
Mm-hmm. You know, like, <laughs> complicated, uh, complicated. But and I'm just I'm just imagining Penelope. You know, I feel like there's a one act play for you to write here. I think there is too. I'm like I've imagined dialogue, and it and it kind of goes something like Penelope. So you stayed in her cave for seven years. Did you sleep with her? You know, like, and and I imagine Odysseus kind of justifying himself by... Well, he's going to lead with the compliments, obviously. He's going to lead with compliments. I thought of you the entire time. You were on my mind incessantly. She promised me immortal life, and I came back. You know, like, yeah, anyway, it could be a one... It could be a very good one-act play. (laughs) Sounds like a good challenge. You should do that and then you should perform both parts and record it. That's a very, that's, that is a challenge. <laughs> Could you do, what's your Penelope sound like? Do you have a good Penelope? Have you been working on it? <laughs> Sounds very circumspect. <laughs> <laughs> like that reply yeah. that you just well, gave. Yeah, right. yeah. Yeah. yeah, exactly. <laughs> well done, Heidi. Exactly. <laughs> okay, let's, let's talk about Calypso in comparison with Nausicaa because we've talked a little bit about, you know, what it is that he is, um, it, the, the common ground that he's rejecting, I suppose. But can we talk about these two characters? Because they're pretty different. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's striking to me, not just that he rejects both this beautiful princess and her kingdom and the goddess and her immortality, or the immortality that she offers, but as characters, they are different as well. And in some ways, Nausicaa seems much more... I don't know if I want to say virtuous, but she seems... Mm-hmm. Um, well, maybe we can say virtuous. Okay, I'll put that out there. Is Nausicaa more virtuous than Calypso? Is and let me, then then let's phrase it this way: Is Nausicaa possibly even the more desirable option of the two, mm-hmm. even though Calypso is a goddess? It's such a good question. So, do you all remember? I can't even remember where this is. You can remind me uh, when C.S. Lewis talks about the two different kinds of women that are appealing to men. Do you know what I'm talking about? He talks about these, the, the diabolical woman and the virgin and, huh. and how these are two kinds of sexual temptation to men, right? The, the pure virgin who has, you know, unspoiled, but that, that, that a man can teach, right? And then the other side is the more experienced woman and all that she would then have to offer to a man. And he says, these are like the two feminine ideals and that every man is kind of torn between which one he wants more, which one is more appealing to him, but both of them have an appeal. Um, and, and I think that that's what's going on here in these chapters, that you have both of these kind of feminine sexual archetypes that are offered to Odysseus for free. He, does, he doesn't have to do anything to earn them. They're just there. Like, just come and take me. Hmm. And, and he has to then withstand, he uses the word withstood when he talks to Penelope later, to withstand that temptation for a wife he hasn't seen in 20 years. And, hmm. and say, no, that's not, I, I, I know she's not as beautiful as, as Calypso. I know she's not as beautiful and young and pliable and available as Nausicaa, who also comes with this total package of rulership over this ideal kingdom Hmm. or immortality with Calypso and 
pleasure from that particular kind of sexual archetype. So he has to kind of say, no, not that, no, not that, for the sake of a wife and a home that he is, I mean, he can probably not even remember to, you know, it's not like he left home yesterday. 10 so, years Yes. Yeah, so I think that these two archetypes are really important to understanding the development of this character of Odysseus. And if you just look at it, which many, many modern Christian women do, and I think it's fair because according to the Christian ethic, he did the wrong thing with Calypso. Like he cheated on his wife with her. But if you don't see it through those Greek eyes, I think you miss what Homer's trying to do here with no, not Calypso, no, not Nausicaa, I choose Penelope. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And it's, Heidi, it's, to your point, it's, I, I, I hear you sort of um, making a defense of Odysseus, not because you want to justify like some other sort of like sexual ethic. Oh gosh, but, no. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not for that. <laughs> yeah. To justify that, um, you have to read the book on its terms. You yes. have to read the book on its terms. Yeah, we've talked about that over and over in close reads. And I, before we started doing the Odyssey, I thought because this is so much older, I think, than any book that we've done. The distance, just the chronological distance between us and Homer it's important to not minimize the differences. And it's kind of interesting. Sorry, I'm going to take us on a tangent. I think Emily Wilson's translation does a very good job of, as much as possible, minimizing the chronological difference. She wants it to read like a novel rather than an oral epic poem. Mm -hmm. But this is one of those occasions, Odysseus's um, behavior with Calypso is one of those occasions where it behooves us to remember that this is a very old book that was like part of a very different world culture and to read it as if it was a 21st century page turning novel, we could get confused about the character of Odysseus. Well, I was thinking while I was reading about the old Testament and like David or whoever who had multiple wives and how I remember when, uh, I was a kid <laughs> in Sunday school or whatever, being like, even as like an eight-year-old being like, that doesn't seem right. Yeah, yeah. Seem yeah. The way it's supposed to be. And then the, what would people, what would your teachers say? Well, it was a different time. You know, yeah. <laughs> it was just a different, they just thought about things differently. And these were people who were, you know, considered, you know, the wisest, bravest, most godlike, you know, people in the Bible. And I was, I remember thinking as a little kid, I don't remember being how young, but I remember thinking, so the guy that comes directly, that leads directly to Jesus's line, like that lineage, was a guy who had a multiple wives. Uh-huh, <laughs> and I remember uh-huh. being as like an eight or nine year old thinking, and that seems weird. And then two people would just kind of explain it away like it was just a different time. And in some ways that it's overly simplistic. And then and sometimes in some ways, as you're explaining here, it is kind of true. Yeah. <laughs> but out, as I was reading this time, I was thinking a lot about Nausicaa. And I'd never, I was never struck before the degree to which she is actually a way better person to put it simplistically than Calypso is. Yes. And there's all these little touches that I really like the way Emily Wilson translate them. Like there's a bit of characterization, for example, when she's leading at the end of book six, when she's leading um, 
them into the city. And so it says, with that, she used her shining whip to urge the mules to go. They left the river streams and trotted well and clipped their hooves along. And then it says she drove an easy pace to let her slaves and great Odysseus keep up on foot. And there's little things like that that are are um, that seem to have her. It seemed to reveal that she's much more attuned to people around her and the things that they're enduring. And like there's a there's a sort of um, oh I don't know what the word is um, a sensitivity to what other people are going through in her that is sort of unselfish and un. Um, concerned primarily with herself, whereas Calypso is basically only cares about herself until the gods yeah. come along. Yeah, and so there, that makes that makes um, it reveals a sort of maturity and wisdom and kindness in Nausicaa that's not there even for a goddess. Which, mm-hmm. which in some ways, so if he's with Odysseus, with he's if he's with Calypso first, and she's offering a certain kind of a certain kind of set of options for him and he rejects that then the next thing is in a way calypso i mean nausicaa is slightly more desirable or offering a package of goods that are more desirable whether it's her youth whether it's her virtue whether it's the kingdom and that's almost like the next and the next thing up for him to choose from because it seems like he doesn't care about the immortality that much and yet he Mm -hmm. turns that he rejects that as well for Penelope. And so each thing seems to be offering, you know, each of these women seems to be offering him something better mm-hmm. than, but now then people could just say, well, yeah, but Calypso is a goddess and she's offering him immortality. But I get the sense that he doesn't care about that as much, as mm-hmm. much, you know, some other characters might, <laughs> might want that. Um, he seems not to be as interested in that. Yeah. Do you agree with this, this take on Nausicaa as compared to Calypso? Tim, what do you think about that? And then Heidi, yeah, I think, I think I, it's I can comments on the way we're talking about women. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to keep it very short. Uh, <laughs> yeah, I do. I, I agree with that assessment, and I, I agree with what highlighting with hi, what Heidi is highlighting. I just <laughs> highlighting. Highlighting. Yeah, Lee, that's a great word. It's a great <laughs> word. Like when you say something really spectacular, Heidi, I think we should just call it a highlighting. Wow, that was a <laughs> um. The, the difference that these two characters are juxtaposed back to back for reasons, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, Homer's a master and he's putting them right next to each other. And they're highlighting each other's differences in this very subtle and sophisticated way. Yep. I agree. I, I absolutely think you're right. I do think that God, the gods don't have to be virtuous. Mm-hmm. And and this this is what leads then later to conversations in the Republic about whether or not people should be reading pagan literature, right? When Plato makes the point of the, that Homer, that the poets, when he's talking about Homer, don't present the gods as virtuous, and they should, and so we shouldn't read Homer anymore in the in the perfect city. So that that's even even later on in Greek civilization, they understood the problem of the lack of virtue of the gods in these old stories. But the gods don't have to be virtuous. Calypso is not expected to be virtuous. She, but... Yeah, it's but, not a currency that right. determines yeah. anything about their fortune. Exactly. Yes, goodness in terms of moral goodness is not required of the god. They, are, they, are, they transcend that in the Greek mind. Um, they can be completely and wholly led by desire in a way that a human woman cannot would never be allowed to. And without, so without ramifications or stakes. Exactly. Yes. Without yes. That's exactly right. So Penelope cannot act like 
Calypso. Uh, Nausicaa cannot act like Calypso. Um, and, and Nausicaa is a paragon of young Greek maidenhood. That's, that's her role in the story. And so she is virtuous. She's obedient to her father. She's, uh, she's eager to get married in order to provide stability to the kingdom. She's like, she's, she is young and innocent and pure and kind hearted and hospitable. And, and, and she would be a good wife to Odysseus if he were to stay there and choose her. And so that's, it, that's, it's necessary to the story that she is a paragon of young Greek maidenhood. I, I think it's, it's interesting also that in some ways she is like a, a um, mirror or a younger version of Penelope. Like yeah, there's mm-hmm. even little ways, just lines of description and things like that. I don't know if Emily Wilson does it in this translation. I haven't looked, but there are, Odysseus seems to be drawing a direct line or a correlation or at least a comparison between her and Penelope as well as her and Calypso. Wow. So I'm, I find that, you know, I find that pretty interesting. But so given all this conversation, let's turn to Odysseus now because, you know, the book has finally turned to Odysseus. Yeah. And for the rest of the show, I'd like to, or at least for a little while, I'd like to touch on, touch on that. And then what I want to do is come back to the Telemachy and figure out what did these four books, like what is Homer doing? What, what themes, what ideas is he intertwining together in these four books that he was already touching on in the Telemachy. But first let's talk about Odysseus. So what do we know about Odysseus? What do we learn in these what do we learn in these eight books? In these four books rather, um, following up on the Telemachy. Now that we've finally been introduced to him, what do we besides the fact that he's godlike and all the women want him, what do we uh, what do we take away uh, going into the rest of the story and as he begins to tell about the the things that he has been through over the last seven or eight or 10 years or whatever it is. Heidi, what's the, when you reread that this time, what is the biggest takeaway for you in these four books about the character of Odysseus? Um, he is, I'm like, a, you can't say he's godlike. We already know. That. <laughs> no, <laughs> uh, I think if we're, his choice of home keeps being hammered into me. And we've already talked plenty about that. The other thing is the, uh, is his ability to speak. Like, he is, on the ball, no matter what, he always says the right thing. Yeah, he reads his audience. He knows exactly what they want from him, and he knows exactly what he wants. So he combines those two things, those two threads. What does this person and this audience want from me, and how do I use that to get what I want, which is to get home to my wife and to my son and to my kingdom? And he always says exactly the right thing, and that's how he gets home. I was really struck by in book five. Um, there's this little line where he's he's kind of suffering and trying to keep himself afloat. I guess no pun intended. Um, and he says, "It says uh, this is line four sixty through two. He crawled on land and crouched beside the reeds and bent to kiss life giving earth. And trembling, he spoke to his own heart. And it seems like even he had he even finds the thing to say to himself." Yeah. <laughs> you said he always yeah. has a thing to say. So on the one hand, he's like, he's a rhetorician. He can, he, you know, he knows how to win people over, but he's also, it, Emily Wilson here is in the, in the way she translated is spe- even making clear that he has the thing to say to himself. There's no situation in which he doesn't have the right thing to say. Mm, that's good. I never thought about that, David. I like that a lot. He's also, my man is supremely confident. <laughs> he is so yeah well when you just spend seven years with the goddess who is in love with you yeah right <laughs> that would boost your spirits you boost yourself in <laughs> um 
right? But he always, it's, it, it strikes me when um, the poet is recounting in the palace the accomplishments of Odysseus, that's the moment where Odysseus surely is like, time to reveal who I really am. You guys, that's me. It's me. I'm Odysseus. I'm the one who was clever. I came up with a plan, you know, but he doesn't. And then later when he's sort of being mocked that he won't have the ability, this is in book eight, um, he doesn't have the strength to hurl the discus as far as the younger men. You know, he's being mocked, and that's the moment where he could, like, sing of his own exploits and battles. What does he do? No, he just outdistances everyone with his athletic prowess. You know, over and over, he sits back when his name comes up, or even when his name is being blighted, and he doesn't grasp for the praise because he's got it. He knows who he is. <laughs> Yeah. I like the way you put it. My man is supremely confident. That's going to be the name of this week's episode. (laughs) I remember my friend, this is the second time that my friend Todd is going to get a shout out. My friend Todd. What's up, Todd? He was in his... Does Todd even listen? Yeah, it's it's funny because he texted me this week and he's like, hey, thanks for the shout out. But the shout out is probably, I think he's about a month behind. So he's getting another one. He'll catch up. Well, in another month, shout out to Todd. What's up, Todd? Thanks for listening. he had been put in a leadership position at work and <laughs> he was self-effacing in a self-effacing way. He said, Tim, I finally figured out leadership. And I said, what did you figure out? He said, Please tell us, Todd. <laughs> <laughs> I wish you could see me. He, he's, he's, you know, he stands up and he says, this is leadership. Everyone, follow me. We're going <laughs> south. And then you whisper in your ear and say, uh, boss, that's the exact opposite way that we should be going. And he said, everyone, listen to me. We need to be going north. <laughs> and, like, and, like, and, it's like, and there's so much truth to that. And you, I mean, you see it in Odysseus's behavior. He screws up sometimes, mm-hmm. but he's always speaking with a full voice and he knows exactly what he wants to accomplish and he takes everybody there and everybody gets behind him. And it's it's a bad thing and it's a good thing about leadership, like just speaking with a full voice about where you want to go and when you want to go is, it's a lot of it. And of course, that's why you get megalomaniacs leading yeah. people over the cliff because they're not There's something ephemeral about it. Like you can't always put your finger on why, wait, why does someone, why do, why do everybody follow one particular person? Yeah. You know, there's something, it's almost like magic. <laughs> exactly. It is. It is almost like magic. I guess charm helps. I mean, Odysseus mm-hmm. is both charming and he, his plans often work. So that, that goes along. he's a along. brilliant warrior too. He's a brilliant warrior. Mm-hmm. But there's a lot of brilliant warriors, you know, in the Iliad, for example, who don't necessarily get followed or get followed begrudgingly. But people mm-hmm. want to follow. Like his, he is the combination of wit and uh, uh, maybe it's just maybe it's the handsomeness or something. Yeah, and and warrior, he's a good warrior, and he he has this sort of combination of all these things. I was listening to this um, or reading this article or something recently talking about how why like when you look at NFL quarterbacks, why is it that so many of them are handsome or like more handsome than the average person? Uh-huh. And the study was looking at how. It's partly because when people are kids, like when when you get a, when you get together on a sports field, 
you know, that generally speaking, you're going to have like whoever the handsome 13 year old is, everyone kind of gravitates to them and that person kind of takes charge. And then that person, next thing you know, becomes the quarterback. And so then they develop those skills. Whereas there's a lot of other good athletes who maybe could have been quarterbacks if they had developed those specific skills, but then they didn't necessarily take leadership. And so there's a degree of confidence that is tied to the concept of leadership. And as you're saying, Odysseus seems to have have that. <laughs> um, of course, he has nobody left to follow him. He's just kind of wandering around now. But um, nonetheless, I guess the point still stands. I read, a, I read a, an article that was analogous that did a study of every major U.S. presidential election. And I think, I hope I can recall this correctly, the only president in a general election who was not taller than his opponent was George Bush when he ran against Kerry. Like, so just height. But then Kerry was a lot older. And so so that, yeah. So the, so maybe even though he's taller, Bush looked more strong or something. Right. Yeah. Maybe so. Maybe so. But there is something just sort of to your point, David, the NFL quarterbacks are more handsome. There's kind of like this sort of primal appeal to the perception of good looks and strengths. And it doesn't necessarily have anything whatsoever to do with actual leadership capabilities, but we do still respond to that. I mean, it's 2,500 years after the Odyssey and we still respond to those kind of primal things. And I guess what we're saying is men respond to people to, to other men who are more handsome than them, right? Heidi, would you like to weigh in on this? <laughs> <laughs> this is a fascinating conversation. I'm loving this. So I'm thinking of uh, Helen in the Iliad in book yeah. two, when mm-hmm. she's describing, um, you know, she's standing at the window with Priam describing all the warriors and Priam's like, who's that guy on the Greek side, whatever, because, you know, she was married to Menelaus and she knew all of them personally. And she describes Odysseus as uh, striding about, or no, it's Priam. Who is that one there striding about like a, like woolly haired sheep or something, right? Isn't that what they call like a big horn sheep? That's what they compare him to. That he apparently has curly hair and he's like kind of stocky and bull chested and he's like walks with this great energy. <laughs> and and it's there's the the sense in the words, I don't have the Iliad right in front of me, but this I mean I I've read that whole section so carefully because it's one of the only physical descriptions of the warriors. Like so when you picture them in your head, you want to kind of have a description from Homer and this and it is comes the one. From Helen. Yep. And it comes um from Prine saying, who's that guy? And which is interesting because they're nine years into the war. So that's clearly a literary strategy to get us to under to be able to describe the warriors. So um Yeah, he they, probably knew who it was after nine years, is what you're saying. Yeah, you yes. So they Homer wanted to tell us uh, what they looked like. Ooh. You know, so um and that's so and the sense of the words is like Odysseus can't stop moving. He's the one that described as striding up and down with great like strength. And um, so he does have this energetic physical presence that's noticeable to everybody around him. Mm. So it isn't, he, he has the physical strength and he has the mental agility and mental fortitude and quick wit 
So in every way, he's, again, a paragon of manly virtue. Um, well, Nathag, you had just said that Nausicaa is this paragon of mm-hmm. Greek maidenhood yes. or whatever. I don't yes. know what you said. But then, and so then they would have, you know, ostensibly in theory anyway, they'd make a match because they're both paragons of yes. you know, some particular virtue. But let's, so let's take this back then to the, to the Telemachy because we get these four books. We don't see Odysseus and we meet Odysseus. We get to know him a little bit. So what, what is being woven together here? Oh, by the way, Another Nausicaa Penelope connection is that the people of Nausicaa's kingdom are weavers. Yeah. Oh, the women, yeah. it mentions her mother mentions that we're great weavers here. And then mm-hmm. throughout, then that's going to come back later. But that was another thing that I, I think feels like a direct, is meant to be a direct comparison. Yes. I mean, I mean, they did a lot of weaving back then. So I don't want to read too much mm-hmm. into it, but you know. <clears throat> um, okay. So then let's tie, let's weave the Telemachy. In with these first four books, what what are where does it come back around, or what do you think Homer's doing here? Tim, you you touched on this first. I think that we see in the Telemachy, we want Telemachus to mature, and then we see kind of what his blood is inclined to mature into this great. Mm warrior king Odysseus who has like we're just saying he's the total package so in the Telemachy in order to kind of like satisfy um in, in the Telemachy we know that Ithaca and the palace that Odysseus is absent from needs to be cleansed of its suitors we know that Telemachus is sort of positionally the person to do that, but he is not mature enough either physically or mentally or emotionally to do it yet. And so we know that his father is a great man and we get glimpses through other people's words of his greatness. And now after meeting Odysseus, we see what we want Telemachus. We see what Telemachus has the possibility of growing into. Hmm. Yeah. I I think I mentioned but one of the things that I really like about the Telemachy is that it seems like he's, you know, when he goes to Melanelaus and Helen's place and he hears from them and he hears from Mentor, you know, it goes from kind of an intellectual concept of what it means to be Odysseus's son to something more specific. And I think that as readers, we're kind of getting a mirroring experience of that. Like we're getting, you know, we're getting sort of a manifestation of all those things that Helen said. Helen told him all these stories and now we're getting to see that firsthand in, in a way that kind of brings, you know, what Telemachus is after and what he's up against into focus. Um, and, and I think makes it the next degree of personal. Of course, then it's also, you know, there's a nice bit of, it's just nice storytelling to go back and forth. But Heidi, what do you think about this? You want to add anything? Yeah, I, I, I think just on the structural sense of the story, the Telemachy communicates to us. I mean, there's, I mean, there's so many layers to it, right? But in terms of the structural sense, it tells us the problem. This is the, this is why Odysseus must get home because his son is of age and doesn't know how to be a man. Mm. His wife is in danger, beset by all these suitors. And she has this impossible choice before her that if we're talking about the feminine virtues, if she is to take a husband while, while Odysseus is still alive, she has violated her virtue forever. 
If, however, Odysseus is dead, she is obligated by the feminine virtues of the time to marry again and produce an heir for her new husband. So she's caught between these competing um, feminine virtues and she has an impossible choice to make. Plus, she has her deep and abiding love for her husband, who she desperately misses, and she's in danger from these men who are unworthy of her with no recourse except for Telemachus, who doesn't know how to be a man. So the the Telemachy tells us not only all of these rich psychological insights, um, but also the problem of the story, which isn't just Odysseus misses home and wants to get home. That's not the problem of the story. The problem of the story is the suitors. Mm. And so that's what we, that's what the Telemachy gives us is that the suitors are there and, 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 and there's no way for Telemachus and Penelope to rise up against them without Odysseus. He must come home or they are lost. Mm. Yes. And then we get in books five through eight, we get Odysseus himself, the man himself, who is beset by many temptations from other women and other good things that are offered to him. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be immortal. There's nothing wrong with wanting to be the king of a magical kingdom. So, but he also has a home and a wife that needs him. And so that's what these books, I think, the, like they, they're not set up. They are the story, but they give this sense of urgency um, to, to the unfolding tale. I like what you said about the problem being the suitors, because yeah. I was, I was going to save this question um, for a future show, but, and I guess we could still talk about it, but like, who is the big bad? Is, who's the villain? That's kind of an interesting question in this book. Yeah, it um, is. Because you said it's the, the problem is the suitors, but so maybe we won't answer that right now, but maybe that's something to, to keep in mind as we read, but who, who's the real bad guy? Because I can think right. of at least like... Is it Polyphemus? Is it Poseidon? Is it Cersei? Right, yeah. yeah is it the yeah. goddesses? Is it... Yes. Um, yeah, is it the suitors? Is it, yeah, there's so many different uh, <laughs> potential options there. But the, mm-hmm. the way to phrase it, that the problem is the suitors because Odysseus, why they, the reason they need Odysseus so much, the reason that home needs Odysseus so much is because of the suitors and why his yes. homecoming is so meaningful. Um, I, I want to point something out while we're on this thread. How many classics begin not with the protagonist, but begin with the antagonist. Because, hmm. so think about, we just, we just talked Macbeth. Mm-hmm. How does Macbeth open? On the three weird sisters. These, these, not just apparitions, but real incarnated force, forces of evil. Hmm. And we meet them before we meet Macbeth. Hamlet. We meet the king... Claudius, who has, like, we'll find out has killed Hamlet's father, we meet him before we really meet Hamlet. We see them at the same time, but Claudius gets this long and gorgeous monologue before Hamlet speaks for the first time. And I think it's interesting also, we meet the suitors before we meet Odysseus. And so the power in these beautiful stories is consolidated with the forces of wrong or of evil. And so when our main character steps onto the stage, we have a sense already of what needs to be overcome in order for peace to return to the kingdom. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's really good. 
It's really good. That'd well, be an interesting study to see how many of these like real these classics begin with kind of like the forces of darkness center stage. The Iliad does too, because it's the plague from Apollo where it begins, and then the conflict between Agamemnon and Achilles. Well, Hamlet opens with the ghost, right? I mean, it's not the villain, but it's certainly the forces of darkness. Right. Yeah. Oedipus right. Rex begins with the plague. Uh-huh. Lots of plagues. <laughs> what right. does the Aeneid open with? I can't remember off the top of my head. What's the opening well, one? Well, it, I mean, it's the prologue about Juno and how angry oh, yeah. Juno is with Aeneas. That's right, That's right Heidi. Wow. Oh. You're on to something, Tam McIntosh. Well, I think... <laughs> Damn, I, mean, I think part of it is, you know, you're setting stakes, right? Like, yes, you want read right away. The reader has to feel like something is going to whatever happens matters. Yes. Um, yeah. Hey, let's Tim. I know you have a extensive. I got a 12 hour drive of your own. Yeah. Today. Uh, so let's let's go ahead and wrap this up so you can. What are you driving? Are you driving an Odyssey? Please be driving an Odyssey. <laughs> no, I'm not. I'm driving a Mazda. Wait. A yeah. No, I wish. I wish I was driving a Miata. I'm driving a Mazda 3, which is, a, by the way, a wonderful vehicle. So you're in Colorado. <laughs> What's the, Colorado. Where does the journey take you from there? The What's the route? Gonna, tonight, I've booked an Airbnb in Meridian, Idaho, which is on the west side of oh, Boise. Yeah. I know where that is. My friends used to live there. Oh, really? Well, because I lived in Boise. Oh yeah, that's so right. We used to that's go right. to you know that's my my middle school years were spent visit hanging out with, in Meridian, Idaho. <laughs> huh. So, say hi to the Albertsons there for me. I will. I'll wave as <laughs> I drive by. I'll wave as I drive by. I have a closing thought, Heidi and David. And let's hear it. it. It's just about the temperament of the lead characters in the Odyssey of the lead character in the Odyssey and the temperament of the lead character in the Aeneid, which in many ways is a mirror of the Odyssey and the Iliad is the Aeneid. And our, our leader, our protagonist in the Aeneid is Aeneas. And Aeneas is such a Roman. He's so reserved. He's so, so, stoical in so many ways and he's such a juxtaposition to odysseus which is just he's just burning with passion and feelings and it's and it's there are moments in the aeneid where aeneas cries but i think it's (laughs) compared with odysseus and telemachus odysseus and telemachus cry all the time Mm -hmm. they're so moved so frequently and it's a sign of their great feelings and of their great heart. And I, and I get the feeling when reading the Aeneid that those, that passion, I don't just get the feeling knowing what I know of Roman philosophy in the time that Virgil was writing, great passions were considered a great enemy, a great threat. And I just think it's interesting to juxtapose the great feelings of Telemachus and of of Odysseus as being viewed as allies to his, to his heart and his valor. This is the part of the story that we're heading into. 
is the the chronology is pretty complicated. There's a lot of back and forth between the present and the past and even time and even place. Then it kind of will switch over to what's going on with Penelope and Telemachus and Telemachus is traveling and, and, and then Odysseus is about to tell his story. I mean, he's, he's already started. Here's where we get all of these stories within stories. And that's a profoundly important structural piece of the Odyssey is to pay attention to who is telling a story and where that story kind of fits it, it in the chronology. It, and it's really an interesting piece of it. And I, I think it's just so beautifully woven together. So I always want to draw attention to it when I teach the Odyssey. Like, just pay attention to all these stories. This, there's a story about a story. And within the story, someone will tell a story. And, and, and that story becomes kind of the, the, the keeper of memory of all of this great suffering and becoming and salvation mm. and restoration. And the story is the V the stories are the vehicles of that. And everybody in the Odyssey honors that. Um, if they are good guys, right. And we talk, there's plenty of villains right. too. Right. So that, and it is the villains that make people forget. Right. And, and that is, I think just so important. The, the suitors want Penelope to forget her husband. Circe wants the men to forget that they're human. And and it is these people who who the protagonists who are trying, it's Odysseus trying to get home. And he's always given an opportunity by those who show him good hospitality to tell his story. Mm. And that then becomes part of their cultural memory. Yeah. And and I think that's just really beautiful and worth noticing as we all read it. Heidi, can I throw one more thing in on that? Please, please. About what you said um, just a little bit earlier, the chronology starts getting a little bit complicated. So an example, Odysseus is shipwrecked in, is it five, maybe six? He's shipwrecked by Poseidon, who's angry at him. We don't really know yet why Poseidon is angry, but we're going to find out in our next book, book nine, which we'll discuss next week, that it's because Poseidon's son is um, the Cyclops, who Odysseus will blind. So the anger is a little bit unexplained in book five. Poseidon's anger is unexplained. So, but in the chronology of things, we're about to find out when Odysseus begins recounting his adventures, why Poseidon is so angry at him. And to that point, next week, we are going to cover books nine and 10. So we'll go back to our two book a week cycle for the next two episodes. And then we'll go into another We'll do 13 through 16 the following week. So for next week, it's books 9 and 10. And in the Emily Wilson translation, those are titled A Pirate in a Shepherd's Cave. And then 10 is titled The Winds and the Witch. All right. Well, thanks to you both. Anything else you want to add? Should nope. we let Tim hit the road? Hit the road, Tim. Gotta hit the road. Enjoy your day. What are you, so what are you going to do for your 12 hours? Are you just going to sit there in silence, look at the scenery? Are you going to you know, narrate? you Are going to start working out your one-act play? Are you going to listen to podcasts? You gonna listen I'm going to listen to... I'm halfway through a 1,500-page book, and I'm dead set on finishing it on Audible as I drive. What is it? What book is it? Oh, my gosh. It's so brilliant. <laughs> so brilliant. War and Peace. It's, it's, <laughs> and, uh, man, oh, well, that's also brilliant. 
Um, it's called The Power Broker, Robert Moses, and the Fall of New York. It won the Pulitzer in 1977, and it's about a man named Robert Moses, who I presume you guys have never heard of, because I'd never heard of him either. And he's oh, Bob, arguably, Bob Mose, yeah. I remember him. <laughs> he's arguably the greatest builder in the history of the world. As far as just the amount of things that he built, he's the greatest builder in the history of the world. It's not Caesar Augustus, it's Robert Moses. Mm-hmm. Okay. It was modern... Contemporary New York is basically a product of Robert Moses's megalomania. Mm. Oh, interesting. Mm. That does sound interesting. It's fascinating. It's so good. Yeah. Well, enjoy that. Thank you. This has been fun. Really fun. Yeah. Have a safe trip, Tim. Thanks, you guys. You're headed to Florida as well, so you have a safe trip as well. Oh, Uh, thanks. Anybody else who's listening and traveling, you have safe trips too. We don't want to (laughs) leave you Pray um, for traveling mercies. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Thank you for listening. As always, you can join the conversation, as I said, on the Facebook group. Uh, you can follow us on Instagram and Twitter at Close Reads Pods. You can find the newsletter at, uh, well, closereads.substack.com. And you can email us Close Reads Podcast at gmail.com. I really should have done everything the same, but the social media didn't have those available to me for some reason. So, you know, now, now I'm just confused, which means we are going north. That's all you need to say. Exactly. Now we Let's are going go north. north. Follow me. <laughs> <laughs> um, join the conversation, get in touch with us if you'd like. Uh, lots of conversation already over on the Facebook group. So, um, you know, be there or be square. Is that what they say? I don't know. Yeah. Um, my former high school students, did they say that? Probably not. That was probably like, Tim's high school years. Um, <laughs> <laughs> all right, with that, uh, for Heidi White, for Tim McIntosh, I'm David Curran. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week and happy reading. Mm-hmm.